0: Hey everyone, I'm Jim Ambusky, and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. If you've taken part in a protest recently, perhaps you've carried a sign, waved a flag, or worn a special hat. But if you had grievances in the American Revolution or early republic, you might have helped raise a liberty pole. Now you may ask yourself, what good is a large wooden pole going to do about my high taxes? And you may ask yourself, do I really want to lift this heavy thing? Well, it turns out, as the days went by in the late 18th century, many Americans thought Liberty Poles were the perfect way to signal their collective displeasure and rally their countrymen against some perceived wrong. And what one group could put up, another could most assuredly pull down. On today's episode, we hear from Dr. Shira Lurie, an expert on these strange objects and the meaning they held for Americans in the founding generation. Americans used Liberty Poles to argue over a citizen's role in the Republic, and what was a symbol of liberty to some was an icon of tyranny to others. Lurie is an assistant professor of history at St. Mary's University in Nova Scotia. She's the author of an article recently published in the Journal of the Early American Republic entitled Liberty Polls and the Fight for Popular Politics in the Early Republic. Besides Liberty Polls, Lurie tells us how she tries to reach many different audiences as a historian and what it's like to teach American history in both Canada and the United States. So I hope you didn't skip your arm day this week because we've got to raise Liberty Polls in the Early Republic with Dr. Shira Lurie. Let's get into this topic of Liberty Poles by going back to the year 1766. We're in New York City, site of a now famous musical, uh, focus on Hamilton, but Hamilton isn't around yet. But there's another rabble rouser of sorts in the form of a piece of wood that people erect in celebration of the Stamp Act's repeal. Tell us about this thing called a Liberty Poll and, and tell us about this moment. What's going on and why do people decide that, you know what, in order to celebrate the goodness of the King's Majesty and to celebrate the repeal of the Stamp Act, let's put up a poll and high five each other.
1: <laughs> yes, whether or not there was high fiving or rapping, I can't say. What I can say is, you know, it's, it's an interesting moment. It's a complicated moment, especially... For us looking back on it, because we know what's coming, right? We know what's coming over the next decade or so. But for the colonists in this moment, they are celebrating this, of course, as a victory in asserting their rights, but they're still doing it within a context of being happy in the British Empire, right? No one is thinking about independence in this moment. It's not on anybody's to do list. So they're grateful to the King and Parliament, which is why on the Liberty Poll it says, George III, Pitt, and Liberty. That's not a contradiction, right? They're celebrating that they're in an empire of liberty. That's going to change over time. And I suppose we can can talk about that. But the question of why a Liberty pole is an interesting one. This pole in New York City is actually a ship's mast. And so we know that the New York Sons of Liberty had strong ties to seafaring and shipping. And so that gives us some clues as to why they would pick this particular item to be uh, their symbol of choice. But we should also think about, you know, the Liberty Pole is an object. And I always say this and laugh because it sounds like too obvious, sounds like a foolish thing to say, but Liberty Poles, Jim, are really tall. They are very tall objects. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And that means that they're often the tallest thing on the landscape. So they're very visually striking. And so in that way, they're very powerful as a symbol. You can also decorate a Liberty Pole, right? You can put signs and flags. And so you can convey your meaning very clearly. And you can erect a Liberty Pole anywhere. So it's unlike a Liberty Tree in that sense, right? It's more versatile. So I think there's lots of reasons why a Liberty Pole was a a popular and became a preferred symbol.
0: So New Yorkers in this moment took this very heavy ship's masts, this very mm-hmm. heavy object, put the words George the Third, Pitt and Liberty on it. Mm-hmm. Is this the first instance where we see something like this done? Is this the first moment when a Liberty pole is raised in the American colonies?
1: That's recorded that we know about in the American colonies, yes. There's lots of threads we can pull at to see where the origins may be. Maypoles, for instance were raised in Europe and had some political connotations, like they're raised during the Civil War by royalists, the English Civil Wars by royalists. They're raised on festival days that kind of connote social and political inversion. They're raised sometimes when French peasants riot against their landlords. Um, We can see certainly from, from that history where the Liberty Pole came from, but in terms of the first kind of strong political raising of a Liberty Pole in the American colonies, this is it.
0: And then getting back to the material reality of these things for a second, the fact that these things are extremely heavy does suggest then that you would need a community, that in fact, it was a community effort to lift these things. It would probably be a difficult thing to put up in the first place without a goodly number of hands to assist you in that effort.
1: Yes, crucially, crucially. So it is a community effort to raise a liberty pole. It is also a community effort, usually, to tear one down, or at least you're not tearing one down alone and it's a, a difficult thing to do without being noticed.
0: Oh yeah, I'm excited to talk about the other <laughs> end of that, right? The ripping down of the liberty poles because that's what happens here, right? This isn't the Redcoats rip it down the yes. station in the city.
1: Right. So the Redcoats despite the the colonists seeing this as a kind of benign or sort of somewhat unchallenging symbol to British authority, the Redcoats who are stationed there do not see it that way and they do tear it down and that really transforms the liberty poles meaning. So the redcoats tear it down the colonists raise another one redcoats tear it down and that back and forth lasts for years and it does lead to some some violence and so it's kind of in that conflict that the liberty pole transforms into now a symbol of colonial defiance of an assertion of rights against the empire against british authority and so by the end of the imperial crisis the liberty pole has spread to other areas and it becomes a very Potent symbol of the patriot movement.
0: So, would it be fair to say then that the raising of the Liberty Pole in this moment and both the popular protest or the popular celebration in support of it, but then also the imperial destruction of it, points to the realization on both sides that they've got different ideas about how the empire is supposed to work or how all of these pieces are supposed to fit together?
1: Yeah, I think so. And it it also kind of becomes a boiling point for other tensions, the idea that colonists are struggling financially and having to support these soldiers the idea that soldiers are, off-duty soldiers are taking jobs away from colonists and undercutting wages. There's all kinds of tensions that are being played out, and the Liberty Pole is kind of the flashpoint. And we see that, in fact, with the positioning of the Liberty Pole. It's on the fields, which is kind of like the common green space in the city. And on one end of the fields, you have the barracks where the Redcoats are stationed. And on the other side of the fields, you have the Sons of Liberty's headquarters. And the Liberty Pole is basically right in the middle of this.
0: It's like a bad football match of some kind.
1: (laughs) Yeah, the Liberty Pole is right on the 50-yard line.
0: (laughs) 50-yard line of independence or continued membership in the British Empire. (laughs) Maybe they just toss a coin at halftime. So, how did you become interested in liberty poles as opposed to other symbols of revolutionary fervor?
1: Because liberty poles are cooler. <laughs> Next question.
0: Next question.
1: <laughs> I began the project interested in questions about the relationship between elected officials and citizens. What political power do citizens surrender to elected officials through the act of election, and what, if any, power do they retain? So that question kind of morphed into a sort of different question for me, which was, what does a citizen do when they disagree with the actions of their elected representative? And that became the key question for me. And so I became particularly interested in what I call moments of dissent. So in the early Republic, we have these moments like the Whiskey Rebellion, the reaction to the alien and sedition laws, Frieza's Rebellion, and what I found was Liberty Polls are really central to all of those moments. So at first, I kind of saw Liberty Polls as a way to talk about these things kind of like a way in. But then when I was researching, I found actually they're foundational, though, they're central to this. They are the flashpoint for debates about these issues that are happening in communities. And so that's kind of how the project
0: took shape. So as you begin to circle these questions and you begin to refine the research you want to do as in response to how you've begun to rethink your initial project, where did you go looking for these things? Uh, do Liberty poles actually exist? I mean, are some of the ones that were erected from this period, not still alive because they're, they're dead, but, uh, are, do they exist in the archives, things like that? Or were you finding mention of them or discussion? How, how did you begin to see the centrality of these objects to the revolutionary moment, but also in the early Republic as well?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, Liberty Polls are forever alive in our hearts. <laughs> so, so that's the first thing. But in answer to your question, I did what what I think all historians of early America, or particularly political history in early America, do, which is I just plugged Liberty Poll into the online newspaper database, and I got hundreds of hits. And as I read through these articles, you know, some of them not very specific, some of them actually talking about Polish people, not liberty polls, but some of them really revealing some fascinating events that often led to significant conflict in local communities, where these events, news of these events would spread to other areas, other states. And I also found evidence that these conflicts would impact elections, local elections, state elections, and even national elections. So that's where I began. And then, of course, I went um, to the archives. And if anyone's interested in Liberty Poles, the key collection is the Raw Family Papers at the Historical Society of Pennsylvania. Um, that Those are the depositions from the Whiskey Rebellion and Freezes Rebellion. And they really talk a lot about Liberty Poles. And otherwise, it was kind of a searching for a needle in a haystack situation where I would go through people's correspondence and just look for mentions of Liberty Poles, which... I don't recommend Um, if you uh, are interested in maintaining healthy eyesight and sort of remaining free of back pain, that type of thing. But that's what I did. And then I kind of filled in the gaps of other information looking at tax data, census data, military records, political pamphlets, broadsides, that type of thing to sort of fill
0: out the story. Take me back to that moment, though, when you were putting in the term Liberty Poll into a search engine when you and I were growing up. And by that, I mean, in graduate school. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, Yes. Our younger days. Um,
1: Young and hopeful again.
0: Exactly. When we weren't broken. Um, (laughs) We That was, I mean, online databases had been around for a while, Mm -hmm. but there was, I guess, an increasing concern or maybe not a concern, but growing caution that a simple full text search could manipulate your sense of what is there uh, and what is not there. Right. Uh, There's a wonderful article and I cannot remember the author right now, but part of the article's title is uh, text searches in the shadows they cast, implying that there can be a false sense of security with these materials. And so when you're working with students, you know, based on your experiences doing this project and you're asking them to search into a database like that, how do you how do you help them see that the ways in which they can use a resource like that in productive ways and not get lulled into a false sense of security that they have come across everything there is to know about a particular Subject and their research is done.
1: Yeah, what an interesting question. For me, I think the danger is less a false sense of security and it's more a false sense of significance.
0: Mm-hmm. If you're
1: searching for liberty polls and you get, you know, hundreds of hits over, let's say, two decades, and this is all that you're reading. It seems like liberty polls are all anyone's talking about, right? And of course. That's not the case. So, I think it's important to zoom out and think about your topic in its appropriate context and to think of databases, as you said, as a tool, right? My project would have been very difficult, maybe impossible. So, it's helpful in terms of you're able to ask different kinds of questions. And I see pitfalls in all kinds of methods, right? I think the same thing happens when you go to an archive and you're just looking at certain people's writing, you might get tunnel vision in the same way, right? So Mm -hmm. I think every research method has its own pitfalls and you need to think about your strategy and method. And that's why it's helpful to workshop and speak with other scholars. And and get some other feedback and perspectives so you're, you're sure that you haven't developed that singular focus through years of researching.
0: No, I think that's a great point. I think it's very easy sometimes to get tunnel vision from looking at a particular source or a particular database. But as long as you're covering your bases and thinking about how what you're seeing fits in this wider context, like a Liberty Poll it's very clear that these things were everywhere, that they meant something very important to people on all sides of the political spectrum. And when some people put them up, some people ripped them right down. Did they ever? Well, I want to follow up on that. Did they ever part? Because one of the key points that you make in your article, and we'll link to it in the show notes so people have a chance to read it or at least know where they can get it, is that these Liberty polls became a way for Americans to debate or claim ownership of the revolution's legacies in the 18th century after independence and, and whatnot. Mm-hmm. What form did this take?
1: Yeah, it's it's really important to understand this. I think the tension between anarchy and tyranny and how much liberty will lead to either of those things is critical to understanding politics in this period. That tension is at the center of almost every political debate, and it is absolutely at the heart of the emerging partisan divide. And people see this through the Liberty polls. So, for poll raisers who subsequently become Republicans, they believe that individual liberty is the key to defending Americans from tyranny, that you have to have enough individual liberty where you can critique and sometimes resist unjust exercises of government power, and they do that by raising liberty polls and using liberty polls as a kind of rallying point for their resistance. And they see attacks on their liberty polls as attacks on their political expression, and so their liberty. And that's tyrannical, right? But on the other hand, you have federalists who believe that too much liberty will undermine government. And that's what these liberty poll raisers are doing. They are critiquing government. They are resisting laws passed by the will of the majority. And so they are undermining the very principles of self-government. To Federalists, these liberty polls will lead to the destruction of law and order and a descent into anarchy. And if we have anarchy, that means self-government has failed and monarchy has triumphed, right? So the stakes are very, very high for both sides that either raising or destroying a Liberty pole is critical to the survival of the American experiment. And to the other side, it is confirming their worst fears, right? Destroying a Liberty pole or raising a Liberty pole is is confirming their worst fears of what the other side is doing.
0: I want to get to some of the moments in which rabble rousers or patriots, depending on your point of view, raised liberty poles in the early republic. But I want to come back to something you said earlier at the top of our conversation, where part of what's going on in the revolution is in the old debate of who should rule and who should rule at home and how power and authority should be legitimately exercised. Now we're in the early republic. We have a constitution and Republicans are raising these liberty polls in protest of what they see as an intrusive federalist state. Do the Republicans see a contradiction in terms in raising liberty polls to resist duly constituted authority an elected authority? You know, They may not have voted for the candidates who won, but there was an election. Somebody won theoretically, legally, and that the government itself is legitimate. And shouldn't they just shut up and go home? And by contrast, what is the federalist thinking of individuals who refuse to accept that duly constituted authority.
1: Right. So this this is sort of fundamental to the first party system, how these two sides divide. It is a question of what is the citizen's role in a republic for the Republicans? They see the citizen's role as, again, defending individual liberty. They have to be watchful of the government because power can't be trusted. Right. If you just let power do what it wants, it will accumulate and turn into tyranny. So Republicans want the citizenry to be wary of government and be active in their role as citizens to petition, to pass resolutions and to resist the government when they feel it's overreached. That's an important check on government power. Federalists have a completely different view of what the citizen's role should be. Federalists believe citizens should vote in elections, and in between elections, they defer politics to their representatives. There is no political role for citizens in between elections. And so this is the fundamental tension. Federalists see liberty polls as fundamentally illegitimate. Republicans see them as crucial to the defense of their liberty.
0: In the early republic, where do we see these liberty polls being raised and what's the context? What's the motivation for putting them up just as colonists did during the American Revolution?
1: So Republicans raised these liberty polls, particularly in moments when they want to recall the American Revolution. Right. So the first time they reappear after the American Revolution is during the Whiskey Rebellion, which is a tax resistance. So these poll raisers are saying we fought against unjust taxes in the American Revolution. We raised Liberty Poles as patriots. Now we're doing it again. Our government is levying unjust taxes against us, and we are raising Liberty Poles and we are resisting those taxes. We see a lot of Liberty Poles raised after the passage of the Alien and Sedition Laws, and we see a lot of Liberty Poles raised at the same time in resistance to the direct tax of 1798. Again, sort of an unjust tax. So it's at these moments when poll raisers feel like the government is overstepping where it is passing laws that place either an undue financial burden on citizens or are passing laws that are meant to aggrandize their own power.
0: Do you see the raising of Liberty Poles as part of the same process we see of the development of political culture in the United Republic? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm thinking here specifically of parades, politics of street theater, people composing songs in support of one candidate or party or particular idea of the meaning of the American Revolution. Is that sort of the same process or do you see them as kind of a, a distinct... Facet of American politics in general.
1: Liberty polls are embedded in that culture. You know, the raising of a liberty poll most often is a is a celebration. And there is a lot of parading and feasting and toasting and celebratory cannons and gunfire. And so there are these rituals associated with liberty polls. And it's it's clearly tied into this culture that you're describing. I think. Liberty poles are distinct in that they remain as strong symbols, right? They mark the landscape until they are removed. In that way, they are distinct and useful then as ways to encourage more resistance, more organizing around the Liberty pole. They are used to signal resistance or camaraderie with other communities. But likewise, they can also symbolize Uh, resistance or rebellion to those in authority. So there are ways in which I think Liberty Poles are distinct, um, but clearly connected and also connected to this longer history of street theater and public justice and popular ritual that goes back to the colonial era.
0: Can you take us to the fields of Western Pennsylvania in 1794? And let's say you and I were, we're not participants, but we're just going to observe the proceedings of resistance to the whiskey tax and whatnot. What would we have seen
1: well why are we not participating? Are you a Tory Jim? What's your problem?
0: I still have an affection for British culture at this point. Okay. I haven't completely. I might even be a late loyalist and head up, you know, your neck <laughs> of the woods in Canada. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and and I thought you liked whiskey, so I'm confused why you seem to be in support of the tax.
0: Well, but that's not aged whiskey. It's simply Okay. It's 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 unrefined.
1: Okay, fair enough. So we're sort of we're on the periphery. We don't want to get involved. Is this what this is what you're saying?
0: Yeah, we're, we're just out. Uh, we're interested observers. That's maybe we're okay. news reporters, you know.
1: Oh, OK. Well, it really depends on the community. And I think what's interesting about the Whiskey Rebellion is that, you know, we're told that it is this rebellion in the West against the East. We're told it's this rebellion of kind of rural farmers against wealthy urban elitists, Right. But when you look at what's happening with liberty polls, you see that although, you know, pretty much everyone doesn't like the whiskey excise in these areas, is against it, they're not all united behind the liberty polls. So we have, you know, town meetings that get um, very divisive. We have neighbors confronting other neighbors saying, will you support the liberty poll? Will you help us raise it? We have people leaving towns on the nights when they think liberty polls will be raised so that they can avoid um, any confrontation. We have people boycotting the businesses of those in town that they think are holding opposite opinions to them on the Liberty Poll. We can imagine Liberty Poll raisings as very raucous and and potentially enjoyable for those involved, but also pretty terrifying or confusing for those on the periphery. And interestingly, George Washington is using these reports of Liberty Poll raisings as part of the way he's understanding the geographic spread of the quote-unquote rebellion. So when he hears that Liberty Poles are raised in Maryland, he says the flame has caught in Maryland. And he uses that as part of his justification for sending troops into the West. So it's not just a matter of being in a fight with your neighbor, you're potentially inviting troops into your community. So the stakes are, are pretty high.
0: Well, it's almost like someone's dropping a pin on a map then where you can sort of see the spread of the contagion in, in a sense and then right. figuring out how to deal with it.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so allowing a Liberty Pole to stand in your community is saying we as a community support this message. We are part of the resistance. And that is a risky and scary thing, especially if that's not your opinion.
0: It strikes me that we spend a lot of time thinking about the people who are raising these polls and the arguments they're making against things like whiskey tax, alien and sedition acts, whatnot. Mm -hmm. Are we missing something by not looking at the, I guess you could say counterinsurgency of federalists who are pulling them down or federalized troops who are being instructed to do so?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think often when we read about, let's say, the Whiskey Rebellion, it often is a tale of what's happening in the resistance on the ground. And then we kind of smash cut to Washington and Hamilton discussing what to do. But there are people in these communities that have differing opinions. Some of them are nervous about having a liberty poll because of what it will mean. For federal intervention, but some people are against Liberty Polls as a method of political expression. They say, we don't like the whiskey excise tax. Our job now is to petition for its repeal. We cannot just decide not to pay it. We cannot just decide to announce that we are in rebellion against the government. So, what the Liberty Polls show us is that Federalists were deeply engaged in popular politics it's not just about what's happening at the elite level it's not just about you know these celebrations on the 4th of July or Washington's birthday or even counter demonstrations when republicans criticize federalist legislation or federalist policy federalists are mobilizing they are using crowd action in sometimes spontaneous sometimes violent ways and so it's not just the republicans who are on the ground, organizing, demonstrating, and so on. Federalists are doing the same thing. And crucially, they are interacting intimately with Republicans, right? It's not just rival celebrations and meetings and so on. They are literally clashing in the streets. And so I think this is a crucial piece of the story of how the first party system developed on the ground, how these partisan identities formed and hardened over this time.
0: Why is it your sense that we haven't paid attention to that federalist counterinsurgency angle?
1: Well, I think it's in the story of the Liberty Poll. And I think, you know, people have mentioned Liberty Polls as kind of interesting anecdotes, potentially. There's been very few sustained studies. Certainly mine will be the first book about Liberty Polls. So I think that the conflicts over the Liberty Poll is really where my story sits. And that is the story that has not been told. And if you're not interested in that story, then you might miss this form of federalist popular politics that I think is not undercutting any of this other excellent work on federalist celebration and so on, but I think it is adding uh, a necessary element that helps us get at this intense, fiery, spontaneous, again, sometimes violent aspect of federalist popular politics that is so community oriented and then explodes outward as the press picks up these
0: stories. Well, tell us about your book project, because I know you're actively working on it. It's a long, arduous process, and it'll eventually get published. But tell us a little bit about your thinking, about how you are taking something that was, I think it's fair to say that most people aren't like, you know what? My dissertation was excellent, and I'm happy with it in every way. Tell us a little bit about that revision process. Maybe you, maybe you are, thrilled. I don't know, maybe you are ecstatic about well-
1: my mom thought it was pretty perfect, so I was kind of rolling with that feedback.
0: Did your mom call it your paper, as my parents called it?
1: She didn't. Uh, she did not. But that is adorable. <laughs>
0: like, yeah, it's a it's a four hundred page paper. Tell us about that process of turning it into a book.
1: I've spent a lot of time thinking about audience. You know, the dissertation is, is obviously something that you are writing with the idea of it becoming a book, but ultimately you're writing it for your committee, right? You're writing it for a small handful of people. Maybe somebody else will look it up in the library one day, but probably not. The book, I want to be for an academic audience, but also potentially a book that can be assigned in classrooms because it is focused on a period of time and has a kind of political synthesis aspect to it, right? And I'm covering a lot of topics that are often covered when discussing this period, and especially from a political history standpoint. It's been a a tough needle to thread, having enough argument and all the nitty gritty that historians are interested in, while also having enough context and explanation and narrative that an undergraduate might be interested in. So that's what I'm, I'm tangling with right now.
0: I'm curious then, because you do a lot of writing for popular audiences in the form of newspaper pieces, Washington Post, a Toronto Star, I think you've had some stuff in. And I I do want to talk a little bit about what it's like uh, as a Canadian historian of early America, explaining American politics, not only to Americans, but also to our friendly neighbors to the North. Have you seen a relationship develop between doing that kind of work and then the approach you want to take in developing your book?
1: Writing clearly is the hallmark of a good thinker and communicator. And I often find if I cannot explain something clearly, then I don't understand it. So, writing for the public, you have to be able to write clearly. You have to be able to distill complex concepts and ideas and even historiographical arguments into concise and clear sentences. And that is a challenge, but I think it has, has certainly helped my my writing generally. I want my book to be clear easily digestible, easily understandable to a wide variety of people. And so the the topics m- may be a bit different, uh, although I do write sort of with contemporary issues in mind when I'm writing my book anyway. But I think the general principle of having clear writing is what joins the two endeavors.
0: Well, Sherry, you are a clear thinker and a clear communicator, so I don't think you need to worry about that. But how kind <laughs> it's, it's always good to keep that in, in the front of the mind. When you're writing for a popular audience, what are some of the things you're writing about? What do you see your role as, as a historian operating in a a wider public space?
1: Often what I write about is providing historical context. It's using history to help people have a different perspective or understanding on a particular issue or event. Sometimes I confess I don't write about history. Sometimes it's just my take on politics of the moment. But my my goals, I think, are the same goals I have for my academic work and the same goals I have for my teaching, which is to communicate the fundamental truth as I see it, that. History is a result of a series of choices. Things don't just happen, people make choices. And that means that the world that we have now is a world we have made and we can unmake it and we can make it again. And so thinking about how we might make better choices to address the injustices of the past and move us toward a better future is I think the ultimate goal I have in thinking about writing, about teaching, about history.
0: Well, as we've already alluded to, you are a Canadian citizen, Uh, you study American history, and you're currently at St. Mary's University in Halifax, Nova Scotia, which I imagine is quite lovely. Can you tell us a little bit about how you see your role in explaining American history to fellow Canadians, but also to citizens south of the border?
1: Perhaps it's possible I have a slightly more neutral view. You know, I didn't grow up with stories of George Washington and cherry trees and, and that type of thing. So I think I do have a kind of a bit of distance from some of the the national myths let's say and I hope that that allows me to think about history and think about historical memory in a sort of more removed way you know it's interesting I've taught American history both in Canada and America and it is so fundamentally different teaching American history in America I have found, and I had wonderful students, of course, on both sides of the border, but in an American classroom, a lot of it is about unlearning or having students think more critically about some of the history and narratives that they've been taught. And in Canada, I don't want to say it's a blank slate. I think those, those myths are still there, but there is less foundational knowledge and there is more willingness to critique American history but on the other hand, there's a less of an understanding of some of the fundamental issues of national identity that are embedded in American history. I think Canadians generally have more kind of neutral or are more disinterested in history, both their own and that of American history. So it's it's very interesting the ways in which the same course in two different classrooms can be so different.
0: Yeah, that's a really fascinating in perspective. And as you were talking at it got me thinking, like, I wish there were more works on Canadian American history. And like, I think there, there's a great deal of work, right, in the early Republic. And, you know, our friend Lawrence Hatter has written a book about how the United States and British Canada are trying to figure out the border. And, and there's some other, you know, works here and there. But it seems like there would be a really great opportunity to write serious history that looks at the comparative development of both peoples, especially since they come out of the same empire in the 18th century. and for a long time, the borders didn't really matter until they did at some point. The comparative political cultural development of both Canadians and Americans, I think, would be would be fascinating. We need to find people that'll do that.
1: Yeah, I was saying, are you... Uh... Are you volunteering your next book project?
0: Well, I've already got a next book project in mind that still takes me back to Scotland and America, but...
1: I was going to say, because it would be a nice excuse for you to visit.
0: (laughs) Well, okay, sold.
1: Keep keep your options open. (laughs) Um, But that is also, it is a a fundamental difference as well. When you're teaching American history in a Canadian classroom, Canadians are making connections. Okay, we're looking at the American Civil War. We know Canadian Confederation happens right afterwards, right? In an American classroom that is not really on anyone's radar.
0: Right. So we're the problem.
1: I'm not saying you're the problem. You specifically. <laughs> <laughs> it's different. It's just a different, uh, it's a different environment. I mean, you know, my Canadian students come into my classes. Some of them don't know the difference between the revolution and the civil war,
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right?
1: There just isn't that foundational knowledge. It's just different.
0: We should start the Canadian American History Research Institute, Shira, and, uh, Right. We could we could lead to great things. Now it's it's um, I'm very excited about this actually. Now historians have been doing a lot of work to situate the American Revolution in a broader context and thinking about the British Empire and the Revolution as a civil war as opposed to simply an independence movement. Right. We often get to the Revolution and by we the royal we well it's the small r Republican we I guess. Uh, you
1: know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we get
0: to the, We get to the Revolution. We get to independence, and then it's off to create the United States. And in our minds, those borders are fixed, but then we sort of lose sight of the fact that there's this interrelationship going on that people on the ground saw and were participating in all the time, but then it's sort of been lost in the erection of these borders, you know, sort of like the Liberty poles. There's, there are two sides.
1: Nice tie-in.
0: Yeah. <laughs> that's <laughs> See, that's a revolution. I just brought it back.
1: Right. You brought <laughs> it all the way back to the beginning of the circle. Very impressive. <laughs>
0: Well, this has been great. It's been far too long since we've talked. I'm glad that we got a chance to catch up and hatch this idea to revolutionize Canadian American studies, but also more importantly, the important work you're doing on the American Revolution and the early Republic. And looking forward to your mom, uh, her name is Lynn, right? Uh, Her review of the book when it comes out down the road.
1: Yeah, she's going to blurb the back for me, I hope. (laughs) Um, Jim, always such a pleasure to talk to you and what an honor to be on your podcast. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to Conversations, a production of the Center for Digital History at the Washington Library. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Jim Busky, with editorial assistance from Jeanette Patrick and support from Mount Vernon's Media and Communications Department. Our music is "Witches Brew by C.K. Martin. Be sure to rate and subscribe to Conversations wherever you get your favorite podcasts. To find out more, please check us out at georgewashingtonpodcast.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.